Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the SEPCON 97, our third annual conference of the separation of school and state alliance. This session is uh, lessons learned from our from four decades of proposing separation and introducing uh, the uh, speakers today is Douglas Phillips. Doug Phillips is a homeschool father and an attorney who who is uh, with the Homeschool Legal Defense Association for six years. Uh, he is currently the director of Family Vision Ministries and owns an audiobook and publishing company and is from Leesburg, Virginia. Doug Phillips. Good afternoon. You know, if it were possible to find a single individual, if we could find one person who had the, perhaps the greatest impact on the development of the modern Christian home education movement. If it were possible to find such a man, that man would have to be Dr. R.J. Rush Dooney. For more than four decades, he has been the herald of the foundational philosophy of Christian education. Dr. Rush Dooney is the author of many books. Back when, long before people were speaking of conferences like this separation of school and state, Dr. Rush Jr. was testifying before state legislatures and before school boards in favor of the separation of school and state, clearly articulating the principle that education is inescapably a religious discipline. Dr. Rush Jr.'s magnum opus, The Institutes of Biblical Law, has become a foundation for many uh, students of the Word of God today and has worked the messianic character of American education articulated more clearly perhaps than ever before how modern education and public education specifically has been a tool to promote a secularist philosophy of life, in fact, a religion. It's been my privilege to know Dr. Rush Dooney as a friend of our family for 20 years. I've listened to more than 1,000 of his tapes, read 12 of his books, and I consider him to be a great and tremendous mentor in my life. I believe that future generations will look back on Dr. Rush Dooney as one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century and a man who is in large part responsible for the development of the Christian homeschool and private school movement in America. Without any further ado, I'd like to introduce to you the president of Calcedon, Dr. R.J. Rush Dooney. I grew up in the great Central Valley of California, and uh, in those days it was an area of immigrants. In my hometown, I knew of only two old-line American families. The rest were all immigrants, and one foreign language or another was native to the family and to their home conversations. Those were wonderful days, and I grew to love the uh, idioms of some of the old immigrants. One that I still cherish was the old man who said, too late we grow smart. Well, that has occurred to me in the past 14 months. Too late, I've grown smart. I've been, as Douglas mentioned, before a lot of state legislatures and a lot of courtrooms testifying for Christian schools, home schools, and their freedom, and before very hostile groups. Now I've realized in the last 14 months what a marvelous prop a cane is. You get instant sympathy when they see you hobbling up to the platform. I should have thought of it years ago. Well, in the mid-50s, I started to work 
on the subject of statist education and its philosophy. I produced a kind of introductory, more popular volume in uh, 1959, Intellectual Schizophrenia, Culture, Crisis, and Education. And then in 63, The Messianic Character of American Education came out. The interesting thing is, nobody in the media, certainly not a single Christian periodical ever reviewed it. But a number of state departments of education had it reviewed. They were very, very distressed that a book would come out analyzing the philosophies of public education and arguing against the establishment of schools by the state, calling for the separation of state and school. They were right to be afraid. Since then, the Christian and homeschool movements have grown phenomenally. This past summer, I spoke in uh, three places in California to regional uh, homeschool conventions. There were other conventions besides those three, but those were the three I was invited to. And at the third in Anaheim, the total registration was perhaps over 10,000. Free education, free from state control, is definitely on its way. It is important for us to appreciate the significance of this movement. It means that a growing number of people are taking back government from the state. And this is all important. It is so serious that there are public educators who are saying they are afraid that the end of public education is in sight. I believe... uh, Matthew Hodge may be here. He was here last night. He is a young man from Australia who is here to do some work together with Howard Phillips. His father is a leader in home education in Australia. And the superintendent of public instruction in Queensland told him in some amazement, he said the most rapidly growing movement in the world today is homeschooling. And it's cutting into the Australian school situation every year. So we see a very, very important factor today. It's a revolution. It is a reformation. What it is doing is to create parents who are responsible, and as they homeschool or put their children into Christian schools, they are growing in their own sense of independence from the state. Now, when uh, I was a child, nobody was troubled about the state schools, I'm 81, so I go back to the First World War. In fact, in those days, I recall vividly that while the state schools represented Dewey's progressivism, they were not belligerent. They were working quietly. A local high school, for example, might invite a visiting pastor In some communities, the local Lutheran pastor might control the 
state school or the local priest if it were a predominantly Catholic area, and nobody minded. I know that in more than one occasion in my travels in those early years, the local Lutheran pastor or Presbyterian or the local priest would call on me and say, you have an interesting story to tell about your work among American Indians on an isolated reservation. Come and speak to the high school and don't hesitate to state your Christian convictions. That was routine. But little by little, polarization took place. This is inevitable. Men do not like to have to make a stand. They do not welcome polarization, which means that they have to say, here I stand, I can do no other, and face a hostile world. But I recall, going back to the old immigrants, the elderly Dutchman who told me he was a farmer when I was a young man, and he knew I was going to go into missionary work, and at the same time, right. And he said, young man, force the antithesis. Force the antithesis. Get people to see the difference between what their stand is and what the world believes. Always, he said, force the antithesis. And he was right. And it became so much an ingrained habit with me that I did not see how far out I was sometimes as far as people were concerned. But people were used to trying to make everything look the same. Public education was a blessing of the world. Oh yes, there were things they didn't like, but if you criticize it, you're un-American. After all, remember, we were seeing at the beginning of this century an obliteration of lines. Does anyone here know the name of Charles Ferguson? None. Well, thank God he's now forgotten. He was, in the early 1900s, before Arthur Brisbane, a few of you may remember his name, the front-page editorial writer for the Hearst Papers from coast to coast. He actually affirmed democracy as the true religion. He held, and this was his statement, we want a government of men, not of laws, because men are naturally good. He was the antithesis of everything that a Christian and a conservative should believe. But his thinking was taken for granted because instead of forcing the antithesis, there was a synthesizing of all the strands of thought into a mishmash. Well, World War I ended that because of the Russian Revolution. It was one of the best things that ever happened to the world, horrible as it was, because it set forth a clear line of division. You're young and you may not remember, but it became a matter of horrifying news to read about the mass murders of priests in Russia. At least 200,000 priests and nuns butchered in the most horrible way. The mass starvation. My grandmother went through it the horrors that were routine day after day. And it really isn't over yet, in spite of the facade they have. 
Well, it was a shock to the American world and to the European world because they were ready to say at first, they're somewhat extreme over there in Russia, but you've got to realize they're reacting against the old regime. But little by little they had to say, it is evil, it is wrong. There's no excusing it. That's what created a Christian position as against the world. That's what created a truly conservative movement. God in his infinite wisdom had forced the antithesis upon us. And he's been doing it ever since. Now we face a battle, a winning battle. We may run into some very real trouble because of pending legislation which may set educational standards that will be imposed upon Christian schools and home schools. We have a big battle there. And we've got to be prepared to fight and to win. But why? Why this plan of salvation by controlling children and their schooling from cradle to grave? The roots are very deep, very important for us to understand. They go back to a man or to a group of men, notably Aristotle, whose influence on Western civilization and on Christendom, Catholic and Protestant, has been enormous. I won't go into all the facets of that uh, influence, but there's one that is important, his little work on politics. It can be read in a very short time. Its fundamental thesis is very simple. Aristotle says flatly, man is a political animal. What follows from that? That man is to be defined by the state. Moreover, Aristotle's politics precedes his ethics because the political order determines the ethical order. Politics is determinative. Now consider the implications of this. It is radically different from another strand of thought that comes out of the Old Testament. In that strand, you have a line of division drawn institutionally between church and state, to use modern terms, between priest and king. Anyone who crossed it, there was judgment as on King Uzziah. That carried over into the Christian community. And one of the great shocks to the Roman world was the work of the apostles and the New Testament. Paul calls himself an ambassador for Christ. A word that was used for the church was parochia. Our word parish is derived from it. But it meant an extraterritorial area, an embassy with extraterritorial rights of foreign government. And Paul said, I am an ambassador for Christ. Now this was a shock to Rome because it meant that the church saw itself as an imperium in imperio, the ultimate offense, an empire within the empire, ruled by a king who was the higher king. This was later, very early in the history of the church, formulated by Pope Telesius, 
who made clear that there was a line of division between church and state that could not be broken, could not be bridged by one claiming power over the other. Well, the doctrine was further developed by John Calvin into the concept of sphere laws, that every area has its own sphere of jurisdiction, that politics should not govern economics nor mathematics. Each sphere is under God so that we live in interlocking spheres, but each under God rather than under church or state or any other agency. Now consider the implications of this. On the one hand, a stream coming out of Aristotle's politics, representing, of course, all pagan thinking. Roman thinking was no different. Persian thinking, and Persia was a very great culture of antiquity, was no different, and certainly ancient Egypt was no different. A unitary order, everything under the state, the state as in some form God walking on earth, as against a biblical perspective which said all these areas of life, these spheres, are equally under God. They cannot attempt to rule one another. And then, on top of that, instead of man being a political animal, he is neither animal nor political, but a creature created by God responsible not to the state, but to God. That the supreme ruler cannot be the state, it must be God. Now, if you understand the difference between these two doctrines, man a political animal, man a religious creature, you will then be able to understand the history of Christianity, the battle it has been engaged in for 2,000 years, and how the battle lines are being drawn more and more clearly in order to save man given the premises of statism, it must control every sphere of life and thought. But from the biblical perspective, man's salvation is not from man, but from God. This is the great line of division. This is the battle we are all engaged in. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rushdenny. Some of you have seen the bumper sticker out there which says, if you can read this, thank a teacher. And maybe perhaps you've laughed when you saw that bumper sticker and said, well, they learned it notwithstanding the teacher. But homeschoolers have a new bumper sticker, which is going to say, if you can read this, thank Sam Blumenfeld. <laughs> Sam is one of the delightful leaders and men of influence within uh, the Christian education movement in America today. Just an absolutely delightful man. The author of seven books, Perhaps one of the most important was, Is Public Education Necessary? A brilliant work, which I encourage you all to purchase. And NEA, The Trojan Horse in America. He graduated from the City College of New York, studied in France for two years. Uh, one reviewer of his book, his whole language OBE fraud book, wrote, Blumenfeld superbly documents the government education establishment's seemingly deliberate effort to corrupt and sabotage educational excellence in our country. Uh, Mr. Blumenfeld's writings appear in diverse publications. It's my pleasure to, to introduce to you Sam Blumenfeld. Well, it certainly is a great pleasure to uh, be here at this momentous conference and, of course, to have this opportunity to 
not to respond to Dr. Rushduni, but to add to it to to any to the extent that I can in this brief five minutes. He's very right that the Unitarians who um, fomented the public school movement really believed in the moral perfectibility of man. They rejected uh, the Calvinist notion of man's innate depravity, and they just said that uh, salvation could be achieved through a, a good education, a Harvard education, because they all came from Harvard. Harvard has been the source of so much of what's wrong with this country. In fact, the, you know, the, the, the Calvinists were thrown out of Harvard. It was, Harvard was created by Calvinists, but they were taken over by the Unitarians, and so you've had this battle going on since then. This is the early 19th century, so Harvard has been anti-Calvinist. You know, more than pro-humanist, they've been anti-Calvinist, and that's why we've had this incredible running battle in the United States between a so-called fundamentalist or orthodox, the orthodox and the liberals. In fact, political liberalism stems from Unitarianism. You cannot understand political liberalism until you understand its spiritual source in Unitarianism. Well, how do we fight that? You know, I've become very discouraged with this so-called uh, Republican Congress that is supposed to be stemming the tide of this, all of this educational legislation, school to work, careers, goals 2000. Where are the Republicans in all of this? Why aren't they stopping this? In fact, we have a Republican like uh, Mr. Goodling who's in the, you know, he's charging ahead with it, and he's a Republican. So what do we do? What, well, well the, the, source, the, the sole source of solace that I have is in the quiet, revolution of the homeschool movement. You see, <clears throat> that is where the real revolution is taking place. And isn't it wonderful that we can have a revolution without blood, without riots in the street? Uh, it's, it's incredible how America works. You see, so you have this quiet revolution, and Rush referred to 10,000 homeschoolers attending the uh, conference of the convention in, in Anaheim. Uh, I spoke at a convention about 11 years ago in, in Ohio at which there were 300 homeschoolers and then I spoke 10 years later and there were something like 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000. I can't remember. It was just a huge convention center full of homeschoolers and you see the parents poring over books. You know, the idea that parents aren't interested in education is so ridiculous. The idea that parents don't know what they want their children to learn. And, of course, the beauty of it is that the parents learn so much because they've been so poorly educated in American schools that, you know. <laughs> so that's one of the great dividends of this revolution. And one of the great things we have discovered is, that, is what we're finding is the reconstruction of the family of the Christian family, particularly because 85% of homeschoolers are Christians. But do you know what's really interesting? That even humanists are now looking into homeschooling. There's a humanist homeschool association, believe it or not. So even humanists who have been the, you know, the strongest supporters of the public schools for since Horace Mann uh, are now beginning to realize that how bad that system really is and how they have to move away from it to genuine education, albeit a humanist one. As a matter of fact, in um, the Unitarian Church has, uh, has its uh, Sunday school, and in um, Concord, Massachusetts, there's a tremendous scandal going on because in this humanist Sunday school, they had a sex education program in which they actually showed pornography to the children. And this has caused a great stir, but it gives you an idea of how humanists think. Uh, they've, they've gone a long way since Harvard to, uh, uh, to what they believe today, and I suppose it's a, it's, a, it's a form of paganism. As a matter of fact, they even welcome witches and all kinds of interesting crazies into their uh, movement. In any case, well, I've, I've been told to stop, so I will stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much.
my privilege to introduce another friend, Neil Markva, an author, lecturer, teacher, who has uh, counseled regarding the kingdom of God and having a biblical worldview. Mr. Markva is also an attorney and the proud father of eight children. Neil Markva. My privilege to introduce another friend, Neil Markva, an author, lecturer, teacher, who has uh, counseled regarding the kingdom of God and having a biblical worldview. Mr. Markva is also an attorney and the proud father of eight children. Neil Markva. Thank you very much. What an awesome uh, experience. for sitting in the, at the same table with such giants. This is a, an exciting day that we live in. And a few years ago, I learned uh, that every problem that exists in our society today, whether it's an individual problem, family problem, a church problem or a problem in the civil government, that that problem can always be traced to its source as someone having exercised power without authority. And I believe that our speaker there this afternoon, Dr. Rushdie, has really highlighted the importance of that understanding of authority in God and not the state. The government schools, as we have so uh, commonly referred to them here in this, in this meeting, uh, is no exception to this, and the fact that it does not have any authority to exist is the subject of a, of a brand new book I, I just received a couple of days ago. A very good friend of mine, uh, Kerry Morgan, has just uh, had this book released. It's called Real Choice and Real Freedom. And I thought, what a good occasion to uh, tell you about this, because this gives the legal and constitutional case for parental rights and against the governmental control of education in the United States. This is a a, a really terrific piece of work because it goes right to the heart of what I just said. In order order for anything to exist, it should have the authority to exist. And, of course, we know that these uh, public schools that we have do not have the authority except for the fact that the public schools are teaching in their... Uh, government classes that the only reason, the only way you get authority is if you have what they call legitimacy. And what they teach the children in government, in public school government classes, is that the way you get authority is simply to act politically and then wait to see if anyone reacts to it. And if you don't get any negative reaction, then you have a legitimate point of view, and therefore you have authority. So therefore, consequently, because the, the church has neglected to teach this nation the rule of law when, as it is supposed to, as it was commanded to by our Lord who said that we are to teach the nation to obey all that he's commanded us. We have not done that, ladies and gentlemen, and consequently we find ourselves in this, in this situation where few of us, even as Christians, even understand what the rule of law is. A good example of this is that a number of Christians are still sending their children to public schools where they're being indoctrinated into the philosophical point of view that's totally contrary to anything that the Bible stands for. Now, this, of course, violates the rule of law that says we are to understand that which is good and be innocent of that which is evil. I am convinced that not until we see the Christian church once again begin to 
uphold that particular law of action, that rule of action in the esteem that it is supposed to have, we will not see a change take place in our nation. So I just simply urge those of us who have some insight into the problem that we can begin to inspire some of our friends to realize that it's time to take their children out of the government schools. Thank you very much. Those of you who were with us early this morning will remember hearing from Franz Jordan, a Racine, Wisconsin native, ordained into the priesthood in 1950. He served the Archdiocese of Milwaukee for a total of 29 years, and for 63 years he's been involved in Catholic action, the lay apostolate. In recent years, he's become an ecclesiastical assistant to many and varied lay groups, including homeschoolers and pro-life groups. Welcome. Let me begin by saying that the, the government schools are a great success. They are a great success if we understand what the real mission statement is, the real mission is. Their mission is to keep people um, subservient to the elite, to make them manipul manipulable by advertisers and by the so-called leaders. They've done a great job in doing that. When G.K. Chesterton, the famous English author, was in, after he came to the United States about 70 years ago, where he wrote a book. And in that book he said, back in the Stone Age, when Ugg said, Ugg made the best stone hatchet, everybody could perceive his lack of objectivity. <laughs> we just look at the ads that we see today on television or in magazines. Chevrolet makes the best Chevrolets and makes the best cars. You expect them to say they make the worst? But actually, that's when we understand this is what they're at. You know, this is the, the pro part of the problem, or this is what's, what's going on. The real line of division goes back even farther than Reverend Rushdoni said. It goes back before this world was created. It goes back to the time when Lucifer revolted against God. That civil war goes back till then, and it continues to this day. We're told that the source of all evil is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is trying to get, to get as many as he can to join him. He has legions of angels. He's trying to get as many of us as we can to, as he can to join them. God created this world to populate heaven. This material world will not list, will not exist forever. When God created us, he, he, uh, we heard about God uh, created us each one individually when he created our immortal soul. Our bodies came from our parents. Even He not only chose our parents, but our grandparents, so we have, would have special gifts. Each one of us has been created for a special purpose, to share in his work, share in the work of creation and share in the work of redemption, to bring his love to all people. Everything we have, everything we are, is a gift of God given out of love, but given for a purpose. And when we use the gifts that God gave us for the purpose for which he gave them to us, then we're preparing ourselves to receive even greater gifts. You know that. When you give your children gifts and they use them intelligently, rationally, aren't you inclined to give them more and more gifts when they know how to use them? So our job then is to learn how to use these gifts that God gave us for the purpose for which he gave them to us. And he wants us to use these in service of others, not for selfishness, 
There's no love of God that does not, no genuine love of God that not, does not flower in love of neighbor. And there's no possibility of loving our neighbor unless it's rooted in love of God. Those are inseparable. And that's really what we're dealing with. And these, all these forces of evil. And we have to understand, you know, the world, the flesh, our own human weakness, pride, the great danger that pride does. Anybody in a leadership position wearing the collar is a great temptation for pride. Remember how Jesus could not stand the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of their time. Humility is not easy and it's something we all have to learn though. To realize everything we have, everything we are, is that gift of God given out of love to be given as he wants us to give it. And so we have had that conflict. We've had the conflict down through the ages. You know, the, the, the civil government versus God and his people. The Psalms, the second Psalm deals with that very explicitly. Civil authority thinks they're going to be able to conquer God and God sits back and he laughs. Yes. And at this time, I'd like to um, invite Reverend Rush Dooney to uh, have eight more minutes. I'm grateful for the additional insights contributed by the responders. One of the things that uh, interested me was Sam's comment about the Unitarians because over the years I have collected a little material, hopefully sometime to deal with that Unitarian aspect of our history. If you uh, are familiar with the writings of Horace Mann, the founder of statist education, you realize he was a Unitarian. He did believe in salvation through politics. He saw the school as the arena whereby salvation was mediated to the people. Moreover, if you read one of the very, very important Unitarian thinkers of Horace Mann's day, O.B. Frothingham, his key work was titled The Religion of Humanity, a very revealing title. And he made clear in that book that it is the spirit of the age which must determine the thought of the age. And no thinking, he said, that is alien to that spirit can have any weight. So the Unitarian influence has been very powerful. We often mistake that influence because we assume that like the founder of the Unitarian movement, William Ellery Channing, the movement was theistic. But by the time of the birth of the state school movement, it had abandoned even its theistic presupposition to insist rather on the ultimacy and in effect the deity of mankind. No standard beyond man. Its influence in our history has been very, very powerful. Beginning with the triumph of statist education, we tended to have within the uh, bureaucracy a Unitarian establishment. Now, it is interesting to me that even in California, at the other end of the country from the New England Puritans, the early names of streets in San Francisco 
were named after Unitarian leaders because these were the people who gravitated into civil government. It was important for them. That was where their mission lay. And as very passionate believers in salvation by the state, they very early molded one area of civil government after another in terms of their premises. They went so far, for example, in California to make it illegal for any parent to criticize a teacher. That was to criticize the ultimate priesthood. Well, of course, that was too much for the Californians of a century and a quarter ago, and they quickly got rid of that. But it gives you an idea the extent to which the Unitarian movement very early from coast to coast was influential in the shaping of civil government and of public education and of setting standards whereby you were to look to civil government to the state for salvation in one sphere after another. Sam has read a great deal of the early literature in this area, so he could tell you even more uh, about the impact of the Unitarians, so that what we are doing is, in a sense, overturning a revolution that occurred in the 1830s. We have seen the development of that revolution over the generations. Now, as Christians, we have to reestablish the freedom of the spheres to be under God and not under the state. That's our goal. We have succeeded in some spheres. For example, in the late 70s and early 80s, the church and state trials were very numerous, and I was going all over the country uh, as a witness. And now those trials are ended. They are trying through more indirect ways, through the UN or through some kind of thing like uh, educational standards to impose something on all schools everywhere. We have to fight against every attempt. Eternal vigilance is still the price of liberty. And so we have a battle ahead. We've won some significant battles in recent years. They are important, and we've set a standard for some other countries. Among my visitors this summer was a former attorney general for the Zulu kingdom of Lesotho, a high-ranking official within the British Colonial Service, and a man who's won a great legal battle for the freedom of Christian and home schools in Australia. So the battle is spreading and the victories are being won here and there around the world. One of the great battles today, let me add parenthetically, is Africa. A great deal of what happens in the coming century, I believe, will be determined by whether we win or lose in Africa and then again also China. There are, according to estimates of the underground churches, a hundred million Christians in Red China suffering incredible persecution of the most savage and evil sort and scarcely anyone to raise a voice in their defense. But the battle is being raged 
waged in every continent. Men are dying for the freedom of the faith. We should remember them in our prayers, and we should remember that we have a victory in Christ. God has ordained all things from the foundation of the world, the scriptures tell us. So we know how the war is going to come out. We shall triumph. At this time, we'd like to uh, open up the microphone for questions and answers, and please give us your name and where you're from. Well, I'm Vincent Terreri. I am from uh, Hillsboro, Virginia. And my uh, comment, I'd like to get uh, Dr. Rashduni's feedback on what I'm about to say. And, and it's uh, in his uh, first address, he mentioned the fact that uh, interpreted Aristotle's uh, Anthropos Politico on Zoos, man is a political animal, as though man were somehow, uh, uh, the, the state were, were forming man in kind of a negative way. And I, I submit for uh, comment here that he m is misunderstanding Aristotle because in the ethics, actually, there, at the end of the Nicomachean ethics, Aristotle lays out kind of his conclusion, and he's gone through the distinction of the moral virtues and the distinction of the intellectual virtues and how those make up what man is. Now, he says, let us not then listen to those who say these things are too great for us or too hard for us to strive through, but let us, with every fiber of our being, try to make ourselves better and more like what the good man is. And then he says, now we turn to the uh, statesmen, and then politics comes after that. So ethics really is higher than politics and guides politics, I think. What you have said is accurate. On the other hand, Aristotle was not always consistent. He makes statements in his politics which very clearly mean the priority of the political sphere to every other. Now, those contradictions, of course, have in time resolved in favor of the political domination of every sphere. So that since the political order makes the basic laws of society, it determines also the ethics. Yeah, I'm uh, Susan Gastanyaga from Baltimore, Maryland. My question is for Father Jordan. I read recently that the Archdiocese of Pittsburgh recently came out with some kind of manual for uh, Catholic homeschoolers, and this was hailed as the most the most support that any Catholic organization had ever given to homeschooling. And uh, I wonder if you could comment on how much support the Catholic Church or different branches of it are offering to homeschoolers and what you see for the future in this area? I'm not familiar with those, uh, those, those outlines. I, I've heard that it's a, it's a fairly good one. It depends, on, uh, again, on the administration and what's going to be done. I think it, a lot of it depends on the initiative being taken by people. Uh, I find that even working with the homeschoolers in, in my area. Those who take initiative are able to get what they want, or sometimes some regulations come out which might restrict them. Uh, I tell them um, that they don't have to follow those regulations, you know, unless it impedes them in some way. It's hard to, you know, speak in general these areas, but there's many things that people can do uh, on their own, and sometimes authority tries to impose rules on them that, that they have no authority to impose. And so, therefore, they should uh, respect their freedom and act uh, accordingly. Uh, again, it depends on the pastors. I know some pastors who are very, many pastors who are very supportive of homeschooling and encourage it. Others, many others are not even aware of it. And, uh, and so you re it ranges all, all over. So it's pretty much it depends on the initiative of the people. My name is Michael Edelstein from San Francisco, California. This question is for Sam. 
Uh, Sam, you had mentioned that you were disappointed in the Republican Congress. By that, it, I took it to you to mean that you had some expectations that they would do some good. <laughs> uh, given some lessons that we see all, all the time from politics, one that politicians say one thing, then do another, yeah. and also power corrupts. I was wondering what you saw in uh, the Republican Congress that led you to expect better. Well, you're probably right, but I think we all hoped that this Republican Congress, uh, composed of uh, so many conservatives, would at least take a stand, you know, against uh, some of this uh, education reform because it's so blatantly totalitarian. In, in every aspect of it and and um, and so I was disappointed but as I say um, regardless of what the Congress does you see the American people are doing it their way you're having this quiet revolution going on because they've lost confidence in things being done by the Congress which is wonderful I think that's the, that's probably the the best way that um, things can uh, turn out. So, yes, I am disappointed, and I suppose I should not have expected it to do better, but uh, there is always the hope. I'm Brian Ray from Oregon, and I agree with Sam that homeschooling represents a marvelous revolution. At the same time, I want to ask Reverend Rush Dooney and you, Sam, what is the most effective way that we can help even homeschoolers understand that they should not be flocking to and rushing to these public-funded, public homeschool programs, and they're doing it by the hundreds, if not thousands, all across the country. Alaska is a brand-new program. It's, just, it's mushrooming. So what can we do in an effective, practical way to teach and convince homeschoolers and others that they should not be doing this? That's not an easy question to answer, but basically, as their faith deepens, they will recognize that they must be under God. And it is usually a defective theology that leads them to compromise. We therefore need some kind of ministry to homeschoolers. I'm glad to see that in one or two areas, homeschoolers are coming together just to discuss such issues, and we need to encourage more of that sort of thing. Yes, I would uh, definitely second that. I think homeschoolers have to, you know, uh, learn that God is sovereign over all, that he's sovereign over the civil government, the church, and the family, and that the family is directly under God and not under the state. And you simply have to keep educating the homeschoolers because, you know, they just come out of the public school system. Uh, many of them are, don't know very much. And they have to be taught. They have to learn from those of us who at least can give them the advice uh, so that they won't endanger the homeschool movement. And uh, I'm sure... Uh, Brian, that you know that there are even some people at very high levels of the uh, homeschool movement who are fascinated by politics. And this is something we have to be watch out for. We have three minutes left. Uh, Tony Moll from Central Pennsylvania. I would like to point out that to say that man is a political animal is by no means to say that that is all that man is or to say that man is or should be merely a creature of the state. I would refer you to book one of the Nicomachean Ethics where Aristotle specifically discusses the relationship between ethics and politics and indicates very strongly that ethics is more fundamental than politics and that the, statement, uh, the statesman needs to act on the basis of an accurate understanding of human nature and the human good. Thank you. Which is a given, built into human nature, not determined by the state, but rather the state needs to respect that and to create the conditions which enhance the development of human potential and human perfection. Thank you. In response to that? Uh, no, I don't think there's any need for a response. His statement is correct, but the point is 
that the politics has been determinative in history uh, because in Christendom the source of ethics has been biblical primarily rather than philosophical.